and welcome to the Fire Retroscripts Fireside Stories Human Libraries. As always, I'm Kimberly Rubanda Robb, the owner of Retroscripts, and today I'm having a much needed Zen tea. If you live in Canada and you experience the snowstorms and the shoveling that we thought to be doing lately, uh, you totally understand that. So my guest today is Crystal Snyder. Crystal enjoys all things coffee. And one of her favorite quotes is, people don't need to be saved or rescued. People need knowledge of their own power and how to access this. Yes, I totally agree with that. And I'm so excited to hear you talk, Crystal. Um, she's a mom, a partner, a daughter, a granddaughter, a sister, and a survivor. She's passionate about women's empowerment and supporting survivors of gender-based violence. Um, I want to warn everyone, today's talk may be a bit heavy, and I want all my viewers and listeners to be aware that nothing said in this interview is to be taken lightly. Um, please be aware that triggers are real, so ensure that you have the support system that you need before watching or listening to this podcast. As a victim of abuse myself, I'm so honored to be speaking with a woman who has such strength and heart. For me, I always carry with me kind of the darkness that was brought into my life by assault and fear, which I've now kind of worked into my creativity and into my writing, and I've become comfortable with talking about it all. But it kind of takes a special kind of woman to stand up like Crystal and guide those who have been affected by violence towards hope. So today she'll be talking to us about human trafficking in Canada, surviving trafficking, and supporting the survivors. So Crystal, before we dive into your story, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and then share your story with us? Sure, thanks so much. I'm so jazzed to be here, I'm super excited. And thanks for that like awesome opening and for sharing that bit about yourself too and you know how, how you are in the world as it relates to your survivorship. So um, yeah, super jazzed to be here. I think there's not like lots and lots to tell you about me. Um, like you said, I have a bunch of different roles as many women do in their lives. And so all of those parts make up who I am. Um, I think a lot of times when we talk about or identify as survivors, we get shoved into a box of that is our whole identity um, and that's exhausting. So I'm always mindful to talk about like, these are the pictures of who I am and the layers of who I am. Um, so you and I had met through my work. I, uh, I worked in the nonprofit field for like 15 years doing uh, frontline work with those who experienced gender-based violence. And then in 2020, when the pandemic hit, I thought I should totally quit my very secure long-term employment and start a business during a pandemic as a woman with kids at home. Like, why not? Right? Why not? Why not? Um, so that's what I did. And now I, I run a business doing consulting and training, specializing in, in human trafficking. Um, and so I bring my work experience and then I, I bring my lived experience of somebody who's experienced domestic sex trafficking in Canada. So that's who I am. Got a full load, everything covered, right? <laughs> well, I more work on during the pandemic and raise your kids at the same time. It's totally smart. <laughs> yeah, I should totally. Why not? Why not do that? <laughs> I love it. Yeah, in terms of my story, I mean, um, I don't talk usually about my story right through. It's just not part of what I do uh, uh, in terms of. I think in, in the world of human trafficking, there's a lot of survivor trauma porn that happens. Um, but what I do talk about is kind of the vulnerabilities, the systemic vulnerabilities that really created the conditions, I think, for me to be susceptible to somebody trafficking. Um, and that starts for me as intergenerational. 
Um, my mom, who we grew up outside of Niagara region, um, but when she was young, she was a ward of the court. So she was in what would be child protection services now at age 11. And she went to what's called the Ontario Training Schools. A lot of people don't know about the Ontario Training Schools, um, but they were schools throughout the province and I'm sure throughout Canada, but they were run by the church and by the state and they were jails for kids. And you went there when you were labeled incorrigible. Mm -hmm. um, so it was typically crimes. I don't even know if we would call them crimes today, but behaviors associated with trauma, like truancy, mm -hmm. uh, petty theft, those kinds of things. And so you would be apprehended for essentially living in poverty and you would be sent to these schools. They had solitary confinement, um, it was what we would think of in terms of jails for kids. So that currently, I think there, I don't think it's settled yet. But there's class action lawsuits against uh, the state and against, I don't know if it's against the church, but definitely the state uh, in regards to these schools because of the abuse that the children suffered um, over time. So that's her story. That's her experience. Um, but what that means for me is, you know, I grew up with a mom who had experienced a lot of violence, um, who was kind of ripped away from her family and was in a lot of isolation. Um, so she met my biological father, who is a really unhealthy, mean man. And she left him uh, when I was six months old. And my older sister was two and she came here to Niagara uh, fleeing in the kind of middle of the night with nothing except for the stuff that you have. Um, so we accessed a service that was in Niagara, very new service. Uh, and there she met my father, like what I would call my father, who's my stepdad. Um, my stepdad suffers with substance use issues. He's an intravenous, he was an intravenous drug user. He's been um, sober for, for quite some time now, um, but also struggled with his own mental health and his own poverty and uh, all of those various things. So we have this trauma that's kind of playing out in our family dynamics. And then at the same age that my mother was, I was apprehended at 11 and went into childcare. So the irony of that is also not lost on me in terms of what that would look like for my mom and her own system and her own stuff that would come up around that time. Um, so we were apprehended, my sister and I, placed into facts. We were in a decent home. Um, so that I think was a positive. That's not a lot of people's experiences. Um, but it was just kind of very messy over a lot of time. And I had a lot of pain, a lot of pain that I didn't know how to navigate. Uh, and when I was returned to the home after a little while in facts, I ran away. I couldn't stay. I just could not stay with myself. Um, and then even at that time in the 2000s is where I met my trafficker online. Mm -hmm. um, so I had already experienced early child sexual violence. There was violence in the home, uh, all these other things that were going on. Schools didn't understand trauma. They still really struggle, but at that time they absolutely didn't. It was something is wrong with the kid. Um, and so there was so much, I think such a hole in my heart that I often use the example of, of pizza as it relates to meeting a trafficker, I think in intimate partner violence. So the example I use is like, if you were starving to death and you haven't eaten anything in 10 days, like you were starving, but you saw like a gross piece of pizza on the ground, would you eat it after 10 days? Yeah, I see you nodding your head. Yeah, you would, right? Everybody's gonna eat the gross piece of pizza. And some people are like, 
will say no. Uh, my favorite is to do this with like medical professionals because they know how long you can live without food. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So 10 days, every single person would eat the gross piece of pizza because you're not thinking with your thinking part of your brain, right? You're, you're using your survival part of your brain. So everybody eats the gross piece of pizza and then it tastes like the best thing you ever had. And our unmet emotional needs are the same way, right? So when we haven't had love and validation and safety and care, and somebody is coming to provide that, it's going to be the best thing you ever had. It's going to taste like it. And you're going to make a decision regardless of all the other flags that might exist because you have to survive. Grab onto that, like a life raft kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, that's really what what connected me with with my trafficker. I had already experienced a lot of stuff around, um, you know, hypersexualization based on my trauma. And at that age, it's so sad to think now, but at the age of 14, what I wanted to do when I was older was be an escort that and and I am so pro sex work I will also say that I'm very much sex work and sex trafficking very different but when I think about being that age um, and that feeling like the most viable option for economic security it makes me really sad to think about it and so it also makes me think that I was extra vulnerable to a trafficker it was pretty much just like please please like I'm I'm open for this to happen because <laughs> I don't have other options so yeah, that's a bit of, and then I guess through through that time, I struggled a lot of time with addictions and um, mental health throughout my youth. And I met my partner when I was 18. Um, and then we got pregnant pretty quickly into our relationship, uh, married at 21. And we've been together now 15 years with two kids in the same house. So that has, for me, worked out um, and worked out for our family. But yeah. I think that not too like because this didn't happen too long ago obviously it's heartbreaking to think that we at that time weren't able to see the damage that all the pain these kids that were going like your mother into these homes or into the sorry the jail like places uh it's sad to see that nobody could see past the pain and see that they needed help and how you're going to continue that pain and that's kind of something that i always touch on when i speak to people is it Pain doesn't just grow out of nothing. It's not just there, right? It comes from our parents, our mothers, our fathers, and it's passed down. And I'm happy that you kind of said it was intergenerational because I don't think that a lot of people even see that. They see you as you are, and they don't think about the past, what may have happened, how it all came to be. So I think yeah. that's a huge point that you made there. Yeah, thank you. And I think there's a, there's a lot more research today than, again, there was. We know that trauma changes the DNA. We know that high levels of stress in vitro um, make babies susceptible for things like anxiety disorders. Because you have to think all that cortisol is being kind of pumped through you as you develop. Um, and so, yeah, it is so much more than what one person is is presenting with. It's, it's the wounds of, you know, all of our ancestors. Uh, that are deeply rooted in colonization and systemic oppression and all of those pieces. Um, but again, I think the the North American way is definitely to say you're not pulling yourself up by the bootstraps hard enough, right? That makes me so angry. Like the amount of times when I went to go see psychologists and psychiatrists that they just said, come on, snap out of it. You can do this. Da, da, da. 
it's not a matter of, if it was snap out of it, I'm sure many of us would have snapped out of it already. It's not that, it's deeper. So yeah, it's an actual rewiring, right? It's a rewiring of your brain. It's a rewiring of your nervous system. Um, those things are all changed. And it's not a it's not a choice that you can make to to move through it. Kind of makes me excited that people like you and myself are talking more about this. Because growing up, when I was, I've had a lot of trauma and I've had a lot of abuse happen and all that kind of but I never heard about it. I literally thought I was the only person that was happening to. And because I was a book nerd and I used to read as much as I could, then I got to know different stories through books, but never did I see women ever say, oh, I've been abused or this has happened. I'm not saying that they have to, but it would have been kind of nice just to know I wasn't alone, right? So it's so, I don't know, moving to me that more people are standing up and saying something. And I feel like when it's in the face of the lawmakers or when it's in the face of other people, you can't deny it anymore, right? It's right there. Now you have to act. Yeah, I would agree. I think, and I think that's what we've seen with anti-trafficking work. So 10 years ago, we weren't talking about human trafficking. When I was trafficked, there, there wasn't even laws around it. So that, that didn't exist as a thing. Um, but now we are talking a lot more about it. Uh, the problem is it's still coming from this saving perspective, right? So although we are talking about it, it's coming from a place of like, you need us to save you. Um, and that has its own challenges because with, with, with most types of violence against women or gender-based violence, if you go and you take somebody out of a situation and they are not ready yet to go, you're putting them at way more risk. And so I really don't think the work is to save people in some extreme cases, absolutely, right? When there's not other options, but how do we support people to understand why is this not working for them? And why is it? That's the other thing, right? Because we know that not all the abuse is bad or doesn't feel that way, right? So how do we help folks to tap into that knowing, that intuition inside of them uh, and help walk that path alongside instead of positioning ourselves still as, as the savior of somebody versus somebody saving themselves? That's important. That's so important to recognize. Um, I know movies do a horrible job of showing the person running in and saving all these women and they're so thankful and then they go back to their regular lives. And like when I see it, I'm like, it's not like that. That is so fake. It's not like that at all. And I've heard it said by people before, well, why don't they just leave? Or when someone gave them an out, why didn't they take the out? But you kind of said already, it's not like that in your head. It's not like that. Um, this is a very toned down ex uh, example or connection, but with my wife. When I first met her, um, I was not in the greatest of place in my mind. And I think she did something as simple as open a door. And when I slipped, like I slipped going through the door, she caught me and helped me through it. And I was like, oh my God, thank you. And I kind of went on about it for the day. Like, oh my God, you helped me today. And she was like, why are you acting like this? Like, that's such a normal thing. And for someone like me who, yes, I was abused, but it was nothing to the extent of what other women have gone through. And I'm not comparing or saying it's less than, but it's nothing the same, right? So I can just imagine being pulled out of a room or something and not understanding how to cope with it or not understanding how to deal with that now that you're safe and wanting to go back because it's kind of comfortable in that space, right? You've made that. Yeah. 
Yeah. And again, that nervous system piece, thanks for sharing that. And I think it's a, a few points you hit on too, like uh, the weirdness of when people treat you well, right? <laughs> like when you've been treated unwell and now you're being treated, not even well, like low bar, right? Like low Ooh, bar, yeah. <laughs> um, but how amazing that can feel um, after, after those experiences. And I think you, what we see with trafficking are things like, uh, you know, police have gone in and they have saved somebody from trafficking and pulled them out and the guy's gone to jail and then he's released and they're back trafficking her again or a new trafficker has found her because we have not fundamentally addressed those vulnerabilities, right? Those systemic vulnerabilities and that trauma. Um, and so we can't, it's not something we can arrest our way out of, um, Although I, I think police have a role, obviously, uh, I don't think that that is really where the bulk of our, our work should be. Yeah, it's the support after. And I mean, if you started doing this at a young age, like 11, if you were taken at 11, you would have no idea how to support yourself. You never learned those skills or those tools. You weren't around it. You were in a totally different life. So I don't understand why that connection isn't made with people with power who can help. And they don't see that now there's a whole relearning and reintegration and all that that has to take place. I don't understand why it's not happening. Yeah. And I think, too, the skills that people do develop, we know as survivors, we develop really smart ways of surviving. Maybe they don't serve us as we grow, but they have kept us alive and they are brilliant, brilliant ways of surviving. So sometimes what can happen is when you do leave and you go into a service, there's like an ask for you to get rid of the skills that have kept you alive. That, no, no, thank you. Like that's terrifying, right? So there's also an, uh, an idea of what we think again in North America, what healing needs to look like and what, what behaviors are normal or not normal, right? 100% agree. It's one of the bigger frustrations that I have with myself, because as I mentioned earlier, I like the darkness, like not that I like it, but it's there. And I know it's people are get rid of it, let it go, let it be light, all that. To me, that's toxic. I'm like, no, this is a part of me. And my story is a part of me. It's not one that I'm going back into and kind of settling into, but it was there. And you can't just snap your fingers and have it go away. It's going to be with you for a lifetime. Because as you said, it's in your DNA now. It's in there. It's everything, right? Um, and I noticed that in our society, you must be Zen, you must meditate, you must do all those things, which are amazing. Don't get me wrong, I do them, but it's not the only thing that I do. I smash things. I love punching my punching bag. I have a whole box of cups that when I'm in a bad mood, because whatever, I just start smashing them and it feels good. But I feel like that idea, people are like, that is way too violent. It is scary. I'm like, you've not seen violence if that's what you think violence is, right? Yeah. And that's our discomfort with anger, right? I agree with you. I know when I started healing. So I've been in treatment for, for trauma for, I'm in my seventh year, um, weekly, sometimes biweekly treatment for trauma. So this is like to say, this is all, it takes a long time to heal and I'm not done my work yet. Right. Um, but I remember those moments of hearing about Zenness and I did, um, hot yoga for a long time and I meditate and I still do those things and I still find them incredibly helpful, but I had this assumption that if any time I went out of that Zenness, that must've been a trigger and there was something wrong with me. As opposed to like, you're not supposed to be Zen all the time. They, how do you come back to it in those moments is really what's key. Like 
you're going to have this other range of feelings that exist and that's supposed to happen. Exactly. It's almost setting yourself up for failure if you think that life is completely zen because it's not. It's a balanced and sometimes unbalanced thing. It's not always just one way, right? Yeah, I'm so glad you said that. It's such a great point. And again, I think, I think, I mean, we capitalize so much off of women's insecurities. And I think that's one way that we do it. Like, oh, you were angry. You must need this product to do more calming. Uh, No, she needs to know it's okay to be fucking angry. Excuse my mouth on your podcast. (laughs) We're away. I only hold back because of you, but please do it. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, uh, I think that's such a great point. And I love that you have cups that you use for breaking. I think that's amazing. Anytime anybody says, Hey, I've got free stuff I'm giving away. I'm like, give me all the plates and cups because it just feels good to smash them. And, and it's something I like for my daughter, hopefully like knock on every piece of wood I have. She never goes through what I went through, but if she has any kind of anger, I want her to smash those cups. I want her to release it. What's the point of bottling it down? And yes, meditation, everything works through that. But I think sometimes you just got to unleash. We put the cap on too many things instead of letting it out. So why not, right? Yeah. Yeah. And again, there's so much discomfort, I think, in society about particularly women's anger. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that, again, so rooted in patriarchy, right? We're not allowed to be angry or we're crazy and all of those things. Uh, And then we gaslight ourselves after hearing those messages for so long. So freak yeah, I think if you can smash cups with your kid, do it. Right. Right. I love it. I love it. Um, something else that you touched on that I don't think, and I've kind of spoken about you to certain people, friends, family, because like, I just think what you're doing is amazing, but I think your story is amazing. And they had no idea that there was human trafficking in their backyard. No idea. And so I kind of, because I've spoken to you and I've done my own reading, I kind of try to tell a little bit and they're like, no, that's not possible. We live in Ontario. But I'm like, a place yes yeah but that stuff happens in third world countries it doesn't happen here and that just floors me and amazes me how much we actually don't see of our backyard or what's going on around us yeah thanks so much and I'm so glad you're out kind of sharing that information it really does take a community right so I think that's such a a huge piece to to be able to talk to people in community about no, this is happening. Um, and that's it. So the stats really shock people, especially when I'm training. Um, I think the current stat is 90% of all of those trafficked in Canada were born in Canada, trafficked in Canada, 90%. So that saying domestic trafficking, which is in, uh, in Canada, is the most prevalent form of trafficking that we see and this is specific for sex trafficking. Um, so it does it happens a lot. I think where we don't understand or we choose not to understand sexual exploitation um, is the beliefs that we have around women and sexuality, sex work, those kinds of things um, that are layered in there. You know, that's very much becomes this person's a slut uh, as opposed to, you know, is this person experiencing trauma? Um, But then also to note like, the stat that we have on 90%, that is a, a police reported stat and lots of people don't report their experiences of, of sexual violence or human trafficking or anything like that. So I would also say it's probably a little lower because if you're undocumented or have precarious status in Canada, you are not coming to police in most times about your experience. Um, so I wouldn't, in for me, I wouldn't say 
90%. Um, but I would still say in my experience, most folks uh, were born in Canada and trafficked in Canada. Yeah. And in Niagara, like Niagara is just a, it's a huge hub. I think we used to in the ex-trafficking world get into the, this city is worse than this city. Uh, and I think we're starting to not talk about that in that way, which is great. I think that was rooted in funding. Um, just, it just happens a lot. Like it happens a lot all day, every day, somebody's getting trafficked. It's devastating, just devastating. Um, it's sad to me that it, I, in my mind, it's almost like it's up here. Like we don't hear about it above us. It's like we don't, we're floating under, underneath, right? Whereas I kind of wish this would talk schools as well. When I was abused and attacked and everything happened to me, I was still in school and I reported it. And I was literally told that if I told the police, then that would be the end of my schooling. I wouldn't go on to secondary education. My life would be ruined. My family would probably, like, the things I was told scared the crap out of me as a kid. And so I never reported it myself. And that was one of the things because I heard that the guy that attacked me did it again to somebody else. And that guilt lives with me. So it doesn't just stop. And I was the person that was attacked. So not passing it on and not sharing it, I can just imagine how it feels for other women that are going through the same thing. But if in school you were taught as a woman, hopefully by a woman, that you do have a right to stand up for yourself. You do have a right to report, blah, 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 blah. Here's the safe way to do it because I don't think always going to the place is the safe way. Um, how much more empowered would our kids growing up be? Like I just picture that girl that was taught that becoming this adult woman and passing, like it would just, I think, end this cycle that's been going through. Yeah, I would agree. I think one one good thing that is happening right now is in the in 2021, the government, the Ministry of Education in Ontario, um, made it mandatory for all schools to have anti-trafficking strategies, which include uh, awareness of students, parents, and like some pretty intensive training for staff, as well as really clear trauma-informed protocols on what to do if you think somebody's being trafficked or they've disclosed. So that is really, really exciting. Um, I'm actually working with, I'm the lead consultant with both of our local boards. Um, so as it's also survivor led, which is great. Um, but again, that gets intertwined with the laws um, that, you know, nobody can really get around. So there was a change to the Family Services Act and now if you are trafficked at 16 and 17, you can be removed from your situation by police or by child protection services for up to 12 hours for them to do an investigation. Well, we know that those structures are not safe for a lot of people. Um, we know, especially at, you know, at the heels of Black Lives Matter movements, how are we not talking about that not being a safe scenario at the, at the height of chatting around and becoming aware of the residential schools um, and how you know the foster care system is got more indigenous kids in care than it ever did in residential schools. And those are our go-to systems to provide this intervention. So uh, I definitely think there's a lot more work to be done, um, but I am glad to see that it's on the agenda um, and that it does have to be collective work with community agencies um, so that those voices can be heard around what are safer, um, yeah, just safer uh, ways to do intervention. As personal, yeah. and I, like for yourself, sorry, go ahead. 
No, no, that's good. But yourself, you're on the inside, you're seeing everything. Do you think that these changes are going to happen, like within our lifetime kind of thing? Like, are they moving forward? Yeah, I think that things are moving forward. Um, I think, do I think that trafficking is going to be reduced in our, in our lifetime? I don't, because trafficking is a symptom of inequity right? So if we don't address poverty, if we don't address racism, if we don't address inequity and, um, you know, the root causes of things like substance use, the housing crisis that's going on uh, really across Canada, but certainly here in Niagara, um, trafficking then is necessary to survive, right? People have to survive. And so they survive however they can. Um, and trafficking is one way that that happens. So I think, you know, some of it is a lot of fluff up here on how we are responding. I don't think truly a lot of it is preventative. Yeah, that makes sense. Makes complete sense. It's heartbreaking. So you kind of touched on some of the things that are being done. So when you work with the survivors, can you tell me a little bit about that and how that looks? Yeah, so I haven't done direct service work in a couple of years since I left my my employment at the old agency. Uh, but one of the jobs that I do right now is with the national agency that is survivor led, and they're developing training for survivors to be able to train community partners um, and peer support and mentorship. So really cool stuff. So I work with a great team of survivors there. Um, I'm just super jazzed to be able to support folks with lived experience um, because. It's a journey. And I know for me as a survivor, when I worked in nonprofit, I think if you haven't had that experience, uh, sometimes leadership doesn't really understand your concerns and you can get gaslit a bit around like, oh, this is your trauma or these are your things as opposed to these are my expertise in an area. So what I know about survivors is that like, when folks are able to leave and get out of the situation that they're in or that's facilitated uh, for them to get out, like they do friggin' amazing stuff. Survivors are resilient. You've had to be to survive, right? You've had that, that already exists inside of you. Um, and they don't take shit. Like nobody, they don't take stuff, right? They're like, this is how I feel and this is what it is. Um, so it's so cool to walk with a bunch of uh, folks through those journeys as we like, collectively step back into our stuff and then come out of it and then in and then out. So um, there are so many really great survivors doing really great work. Um, and I'm, I'm glad to see those voices elevated. Uh, and, and I know that there's a lot of conversation around it being a best practice. It's, it'll be great to see our support systems um, start to integrate that as a, as a best practice and pay people for their expertise when, when asking for their voices. Yeah. I think that's so cool. And I think that's an amazing point. Like there's almost this badass quality because they've had to be, like you said, resist resilient and they've had to like fight through so much. You can't just learn that. Like you, you can't live a nice, happy, simple life and have that ingrained, no bullshit personality. Do you know what I mean? Like you, it, it's come because you've been through shit and you've seen shit. So now you're not going to go, you know what I mean? And I've met women like that and I've heard their stories and I'm just blown away. But then I see the way that they attack life now and the way that they live. I'm like, wow, that is so cool. Like, I love it. It's not for everybody's like their personalities, of course, but I don't know. I'm so inspired by it. It's crazy. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that it's not tough and it doesn't mean that every day, you know, we're all together and um, able to 
kind of bring ourselves in that way. It doesn't mean that it's not painful. All those things still exist, but it, I think innately means there are, there are some real strengths uh, that, that folks who've survived violence have. Um, and I think that they need to be recognized as such. Compensated, like you said, that's important. Yeah. Before, I think before talking to you and a few other people, I was like, it's not the money, da da da. It's not the, but it kind of is. Like as much as we want to say money doesn't rule the world, it does. It really, really does. And I think that because I came from a poorer family, I look at the things that happened and. I look at the things that have happened to other people due to not having enough just to survive. And I'm just like, when will that change? Like, when will we recognize that the problems we're seeing are because there's not enough to go around or there is enough to go around. It's just not distributed enough. You know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. I think um, economic empowerment is a, is a huge thing. And I remember teaching life skills years ago in one of my roles and one of them was budgeting and I, I consistently thought like who am I to sit here and tell women on social assistance that the reason why they can't survive is because they're not budgeting properly that's absolutely not what's happening here when you're given $700 a month and your rent at that time was more than half now you could not even rent a place uh, it's not, these women are already master budgeters. Like they're already doing it. Exactly. They're surviving on nothing. <laughs> but it's put that way, right? Like that it is, we're not doing enough for it. There's oh, you're something. doing more than enough for hundred percent. It's way more than enough. And I agree with you. Like, it's so frustrating and we can see why there's so much anger surrounding it as well. Like I, I would be pissed off as well if you were given 700 bucks or if you had 700 and you're told to make it stretch to be 1400. How does that happen? Like it doesn't. Yeah. And then you're ashamed. You are shamed in society. You're at risk for losing your child. Like there are all these other things that ingrain this way of feeling like you've done something wrong. Um, and then you believe it when it's not, it's just not, an, you're just not given enough. Like it has nothing to do with parenting, um, but that happens, right? Like people, people often lose access to their children because of poverty related issues. When the, the fixer isn't more parenting classes, it's friggin' money. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Instead of paying for the parenting classes, pay her to live, right? You know what I mean? No, that's a good point. So we are drawing to a close. Um, this has been an amazing talk and I really have enjoyed it. I feel like I could talk to you for hours about this stuff because there's so much that goes into it. We've only touched the tip of the iceberg, I feel. Um, is there anything you'd like to leave the viewers and listeners with? Any tip or maybe a topic, maybe something that they could go and do or I don't know, whatever you want. Yeah, I would say like uh, in, in the context of human trafficking, like go read about it and don't go read about like, I mean, read about the government stuff, but think critically when you're seeing data around human trafficking or anything, but specifically human trafficking, think about who's not in those numbers and why. Mm -hmm. Like that's the real work, right? Is, is to look at this data and say, okay, 90% of, of people are trafficked in Canada. Well, then we're only looking for Canadian born people as survivors, right? So think, 
think about who's not, who may not be represented in data and why. Uh, same with the stats around females. We don't even touch on uh, gender as a, as a spectrum and how that might look to be representative. So those things, I, I would challenge any listeners to like, go learn the data about trafficking in Canada and then think about who's also not in the data. Um, and just have the conversations, just talk about it. That's already doing something. Yes, I love it. So for everyone listening or watching, I'm going to put up all of the information for Crystal at the end here, um, how maybe you can get in touch with her business, what you can do, all that stuff will be on the screen. Crystal, thank you, thank you, thank you for this chat. It's heavy for the morning, but I strangely feel inspired. It's really cool. I love it. And I'm looking forward to maybe working with you in the future as well. Yes, Kimberly, I'm so jazzed you asked me to come today and I can't wait to do more work with you. Thank you. This has been so fun. And and I will post on, if it's cool, I'll post a link on my website too when this is up. Definitely, 100%. All right, we will chat soon. You have an amazing day and everyone stay safe. Bye.